What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Today's interview is with Sarah Hawk, but everyone just calls her Hawk. She's been in the community industry for about 20 years now. So she's a a great industry veteran who's seen the industry change a lot and has seen countless communities come and go. She was a founder of UX Mastery, a community that she built up and ultimately decided to pass on the keys to, to other leaders to run. She worked on community at Feverbee, working with lots of different companies and developing community trainings. And today she's the VP of community at Discourse, one of the most popular community platforms out there. We cover a whole range of topics here, going from how to choose your community platform to how to leave a community that you started, her checklist for everything that you should go through when you do select a community platform and how to get the most out of your platform, her top metrics to measure, how she sets notifications for communities. We do the kind of big theoretical stuff here, as well as lots of in the weeds tips and tricks. There's so much that you're going to learn from this. Let's dive in. Hawk. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm so excited to be here. You're a bit of a legend in the community industry, and you've done everything from building your own communities to running community for today at Discourse for platforms. You've worked on communities of communities with Feverbee. So you're someone who's been in the industry for a long time, and I'm very, very excited to, to have this chat. It's been a long time coming. Why don't we just kick off and can you just share a little bit in your own words about your background and what brings you to where you are today? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was funny actually when I was uh, just uh, going back over my history as a result of planning for this, I realized that I've been saying I've been in community for 15 years, but I've realized that it's closer to 20, which is, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't know if that's something to be proud of or it speaks to uh, to my age. But yeah, it started back in the 90s, my community journey, really. I was working. Very with... proud, I think. <laughs> we'll go with very proud. <laughs> um, yeah, I was I was working as a software developer at Xerox and I stumbled across the SitePoint community in the course of my work. And, and you know, that was one of the very early um, big tech communities. And yeah, I was I was immediately hooked. And I ended up working my way up through the kind of moderation ranks there. And when I left work to have my kids, they offered me a job as a community manager. And that was kind of the first time I'd ever even heard of, of community management as being a thing. We used to be admins back in those days. And I kind of um, were forging forward, and it was really cool. I got to create the role for myself. And it was also um, my first foray into remote work. The company was in Australia. I'm in New Zealand. But I've also been working remotely now for 12-odd years, which is another big milestone, <laughs> given how, how many people are doing it now, I guess. Um, but yeah, a few years into Ahead of the curve on that one, too. <laughs> yeah, we can talk about that. Yeah, a few years um, into that job, I decided that life was way too short for V-Bulletin, which it is. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I so I migrated um, SitePoint onto Discourse, which was in beta at the time. And that was my first introduction to Discourse and to what um, kind of more modern community software could look like. And that was that was really exciting for me. It was um, it's kind of bridging my two roles, but, you know, the software and, and the community aspect, and that is a really privileged place to be. So I forged on and um, migrated, as I said, that large community onto onto Discourse, and um, that, it was a, a very big and very public migration back in the early days of people moving around between platforms, and that put me on the radar of a few high-powered community builders, one of whom, um, as you mentioned, Feverby, Rich Millington. So Rich offered me a job on his team. Uh, managing the Fever B Experts community. That was very meta, managing a community for community managers. Mm-hmm. That, re- that really... Uh, I know a little yeah, bit about that. Yeah, flex my skills. That was uh, a, a great time. I also got into some consultancy with Rich. And so, I, yeah, I went from... What was really cool about that was I went from doing my job to really thinking about why and how I do my job and kind of passing on some of the, the skills that I had kind of just naturally built up over the years, I suppose, that, you know, that whole edge about teaching something, you know how well you know something when you try and teach it. So, yeah, so that was cool. Um, and I, once again, made the decision to to migrate um, the experts community. It was on Drupal, so I migrated onto Discourse. Um, and I'd also, as you mentioned earlier, launched a side community, a passion project at UX Mastery that was also on Discourse. So 
uh, Jeff Atwood finally had enough of hearing my name, I guess, and offered me a job on his team. <laughs> so I like to tell it to Jeff, the, the <laughs> CEO of Discourse. Sure, yeah. Discourse. Yeah, the, the brains behind the, the product, really. Um, and, yeah, I've been working with, with Jeff ever since. I've been there four years, um, and I plan to be there forever at this, at this point in time. How long has Discourse been around? It's been around since 2013. Oh, wow. Yeah, when I joined four years ago, I was, I was employee number 13, and then we had a bit of a growth phase, and I now manage more people than that directly. So, right. so yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's not the short version of my story. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty short. I know there's a lot more in there, but great place to kick off. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I still kind of perceive Discourse as like a new platform. It's still, I still remember when it launched, but I guess, yeah, seven years ago or so is, is about right. Yeah, and, and that's that's fair though. That there was beta it was beta for a long time. True. When I as I said, when I came on as number thirteen, that was kind of when we started to to really grow and sell and sell the product. The the years before that had been planning and building. We've gone from there. We've actually just launched a, a second product, discourse for teams. Right. Uh, Congrats. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Very cool. Taking on that slack battle now that they're <laughs> bought by the man. Right. Opens up the window. Totally. The timing of that was, was pretty crazy, as obviously was the the unfortunate timing of, of COVID, which which meant that everybody needs needs to work from home. So we couldn't have we couldn't have planned that better really as far as awful things coming out of sorry, great things coming out of awful situations. Gotta find a silver lining somewhere. <laughs> you do indeed. And so did that for discourse, did that just come out of did you see people organically starting to use discourse for internal teams exactly. and like cool let's start officially supporting this? Yeah, it, it started out actually as, as us using it. We've always dogfooted the product, um, which has been a you know a, a powerful part of our of a philosophy really and you know we wouldn't we wouldn't try and sell something to someone that didn't work for us. So we've been using it we, we only use Discourse internally for all our collaboration and we started to notice that people were asking for some of the features uh, that we've been building into the product for ourselves and thought, well, holy hell, maybe there's a, a bit of a market here. This was just over a year ago now, I think, and so we started to pull together some of the, the, the plugins and, and little pieces of functionality that we'd been building and decided to package it up and, and release it this year and then uh, the world fell apart and... It, uh, yeah, it all came together at, at the right time, really. So, yeah, a number of communities were starting to use discourse internally within their organisations, and we also wanted to kind of reconsider what our pricing looked like for those smaller organisations. You don't necessarily want to spend hundreds of dollars a month if there's five of you in the office or, you know, even 20 of you in the office. So, yeah, some some kind of soul-searching around how we made that work for organisations that didn't want a huge public community. Got it. Awesome. I'll have to check it out. I'm curious, I always like to ask people who have been, you know, veterans in the industry today, have seen the industry and how it's grown for you over 20 years now. Uh, It feels like this year, a lot of things have changed and the community industry has hit kind of a different inflection point. What do you feel is different today about how businesses are looking at community and just looking at the online community industry as a whole? What feels different today looking back at the last 20 years? The reasons that, that, that people decide to build communities. like Back in the day, communities kind of organically appeared because there was a strong need for something. You know, For instance, the sitebook community that I talked about that came about because there were so many thousands of people that were having these conversations and, and had this strong need to fulfil, which at the time was you know, support while you're coding. Um, and so these big successful communities organically grew um, and and they couldn't fail. Like there was no the, the work I did as a community manager wasn't really. It didn't need to be strategic. It was it was more about managing a, a team of moderators and making sure that everybody got what they needed. I guess strategy and far as far as platform and stuff goes. But there was no scrambling for engagement figure. You know, engagement stats and and trying to make sure the community kept functioning on a trajectory that made the business happy. And I think that's changed a lot now. I think now. Um, there is a, often organisations, and this year I'm not talking support communities because that's a different kettle of fish, but you know, often communities, sorry, organisations decide that community is the next big thing and, and maybe they should have one and so they go through the, the planning process of finding funds and, and they create this thing that they haven't really necessarily researched very well and it's a, a struggle and 
poor community managers are trying to find ways to crank up their engagement stats to prove their worth. And often the, the community probably just shouldn't have been there in the first place. I think that kind of philosophy around why and how communities work and, and, and what we need them for has really changed. But mm. but also on the positive side, uh, there has been a real move towards embracing community as a medium for communication. And I know... Um, you know that most people these days would would much rather find help online than than ring and sit on a phone call for hours. So, yeah, our attitude towards it, and also the the ways that we interact online have have really encouraged a new embracing, I guess, of of community because we are comfortable with social media. We are comfortable having text based conversations. We don't worry so much about how we come across or how we sound. Whereas, you know, in the past. Um, especially, I think, I guess that's a heavier use of, acceptable use of emoji as well. But yeah, we, the way that we used to communicate was, was a little bit fraught online. And so I, I've seen a real sea change there as well, which has been a, a healthy change. Yeah, it's a really interesting distinction that I haven't heard made before of kind of before it was hard to get businesses to buy into community, but that meant that the communities that existed for the most part were super authentic and organic because they had to grow organically. They weren't getting the investment and right. the automatic buy-in. And, and as that's starting to change now, which is like super exciting for those of us who have been, you know, fighting tooth and nail to get budget and support and buy-in for the last decade. Yeah. Now to see companies kind of lead with like, all right, we're bought into community, now make it happen. As a result, there's a lot of communities starting that like wouldn't have organically just cropped up and and as a result, maybe don't work or don't end up being engaged or don't end up being very authentic because they're kind of being started with this business goal rather than just organically coming up on its own by the pure need of members. Right. Yep, exactly. What do you think is the mistake that companies make or, or what can they do if if I'm a company today that's wanting to launch a community or build a community-driven business to make sure that it is done properly, it is done well, it is a community that actually needs to exist? Uh, I think research, I think research your, your audience. Um, I, I think that unless there's, like, you know, the, the, one of the biggest things that we hear in communities that aren't working very well is one of the nuts that we feel like we have to crack is is that whole, I'm just too busy, I'm sorry, I can't find time at the moment. Well, it's just bullshit, right? No one's too busy to do something that they really want to do. Those people that are too busy to engage in your community are still probably spending half an hour a day on Facebook. So it's not about busyness it's you just haven't cracked the persuasion or the, it's, it's not their priority mm-hmm. so i think that organizations need to know what that priority is what what is it what need are they trying to solve for the audience and i think um, there's a misconception about what a community is there for when people think oh it's gonna be great you know we're gonna talk to our audience we're gonna tell them what a great brand we are they're gonna they're gonna love us because we've got all this you know communication because communication channel but did they need a new communication channel like were you getting so many millions of emails a, a day that it made sense to to store this information somewhere else because that's a valid reason to start a community but yeah I, I think that unless unless you've done some some really careful research and you've worked out that there is a really strong need and you know really specifically what it is you've got a laser focused concept for your community um, yeah, if you don't do that, then you're you're fighting a losing battle, and not just you as an organisation, but the the poor person that's um, that's put in the hot seat that that has to make it work. Um, and you know, we we are community managers. While while things, you know, it's a tough time for everyone, and people are battling for jobs. So people quite often take a job um, because it's going, not because they have necessarily any passion for it. And that equation just doesn't end up working out. What does it look like practically to do that research? So if you if you were to come in, let's say, and, and like help a company figure out their community strategy now, like what what is the steps to to or questions you ask or process to to conduct that research? Yeah, I, I've been through the process a few times back in, in the day at, at Feverbee, and it's there's a number of approaches. If you if you're hiring a strategist, then it's a reasonably you know, in depth and complicated process and there's questionnaires and you do, it essentially looks very much like a market research project. We used to jump on the, the phone with potential community members or with those that might be a power user and really talk through what it is that, what issue it is that they need to solve or what's going to make their day easier. There's um, there's quite a few resources that, questionnaire resources that you can find online for that. Um, but if that's not, if you're not going to hire a consultant, which which is cool, you don't need to, um, then I just think 
it's as simple as starting to talk to the people that are already talking to you. So I think there's a, a misconception that if I send out a survey to to a thousand of my of my users and they all come back saying, oh, no, no, I don't really know what, what we need or no, we're happy or, or whatever. They're, they're not. Again, they're just time poor. So they just gave you the, the it was the lowest bar to entry, which was to, to click the no. You need to be talking to the people that you already have a dialogue with. So uh, in our case, at Discourse, you know, we know who our power users are. We know who the, the people that contact us the most looking for interesting new features or trying to find out ways to do different things. Those are the people that you need to be talking to. Those are the people that are going to form that core basis of your community as you know, as, as you know, as a as a community builder that trying to find those beta users or those beta testers that, that turn into the the heart and soul of your community. It's those people that you want to be talking to because they understand what that need is and they're also going to be there to strengthen and encourage new users and to to form kind of the backbone of of the community so right it's about asking lots of questions and that's just not that's not just at the the beginning either like i i think that um quite often as as community managers we just don't ask we just don't ask questions enough you should be asking for ongoing feedback from from your community all of the time you should ask what they're struggling with with the platform because you might find they're doing something doing something dumb is not very kind, but doing something that could be done in a better way, like it's not actually a problem, you just haven't got into to the bottom of it, or, you know, um, asking them about what information it is they'd like to see or what changes or what's not going right for them. I think sometimes we're too scared to ask for feedback, maybe for fear of what we're here, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, it's, I think it's incredibly important, provided you're prepared to act on it because there's nothing, uh, there's nothing, it's better to ask for no feedback than to ask for feedback and then go, oh, yeah, sorry, no, we can't. We can't do anything about that. It's been like that forever. It's interesting. I wonder why people are like averse often to asking for that feedback. I think part of it's probably that it's hard to get feedback and you don't want to be wrong. Yep. It's also, I've experienced this myself where I just, I like try to solve the problems in my own head in a way. Like you take on this like, idea of leadership where it's like I have to decide and like guide our community rather than like rooting it in that conversation yeah and I think that that's valid and in lots of cases that communities are just looking for leadership and that's that's your job right but but I also think that it's easy to forget that in order to continue to function in a healthy way you you need you need it to be a collaborative thing and you need the buy-in from those members and you need like I've seen communities fall apart for simple reasons like one member or maybe a, a small group of members that are that are angry or that aren't uncivilized or aren't kind or tend to bash people but they're the people that are that are answering most of the questions so we find ways to you know we, we internally agonize about it and we find ways to protect those people and we think we're doing our job by warning them and doing all these things but as long as they continue to be there they're toxic and the rest of the audience doesn't know that you've been doing all of this thinking and planning and discussing. And I'm not necessarily saying that you publicize bad behavior, but we tend to go down a rabbit hole of trying to solve these things by ourselves when sometimes there's some much more obvious answers or or ways forward that we haven't thought of. And and unless yeah, unless you open that dialogue and have those conversations and make the community collaborative then uh, then it, it you know it can quickly become toxic. Not that I'm saying that communities are democracies because they're not but your members, if you want a healthy community and a healthy environment for those people to continue to want to come to, then they need to feel like they have some control over what it looks like. Right. So, okay, so you do your research and you learn about kind of the, the problems that the community can solve. and The fundamental need that, that the community can solve for that person, yeah. What is it that's going to make them prioritize their time of day over all of the other millions of things they've got to do? I kind of struggle with this sometimes. I'm curious to get your thoughts on, like, the utility value of community versus the social emotional draw that brings people into community and which one actually matters more right like you can actually solve a problem in a very shallow simple way but like the right people are there and everyone's drawn to it um, because it just like feels like a cool community or cool group to be a part of and you can like go above and beyond to solve every problem under the sun for this group of people. And they might have tons of problems, but if, like you don't like nail that social dynamic, that social identity that draws people in, it's still uh, a ghost town. But don't you think that those are different kinds of communities? You could have an extremely successful support community that answers 
everybody's questions and re- removes all of you know some court affliction stats are through the roof you get hundreds and hundreds of people a day but they only ever come along twice and ask their question and leave now if i was a community manager that was trying to get my community to be sticky that looks really really bad but it's actually solved the i mean the roi piece for the business is, is nailed right but then you've got your other kind of community you know your community of practice and yeah you 100 percent want to create that that sense of community and you want those people to keep coming back and you you, you know partly because they serve the, the purpose of, of answering questions for others but also yeah because that's become their online home and i think those are both very valid but they they're very different kinds of communities the second one is so so much harder to nail and and i guess because you can't force it mm. you can be the coolest community manager in the world and you can have 10 of the most amazing super users in the world but but yeah if you don't get that that secret elusive thing that we all chase mm. i just don't think that it's ever going to work and it's at that point that you've got to have the courage to to pivot or walk away otherwise you're setting yourself up for a for a life of misery, mm. <laughs> checking your stats every month and going, uh, I've spent yeah. like half a percent. Like, well, it's so hard, right? Yeah. And then that, it, that's like the art of community side yeah. of things. It's, it's more like writing a song or writing an article or a book. Like, you don't know what's going to resonate and click. And sometimes it just works and it clicks. And then sometimes you do all the right things. Like, it has all the pieces of a great song, but people yeah. just don't like it. <laughs> and you have to just keep writing keep writing music okay right until you find the next one and i think that's so important right it is it's there's two big pieces there one is obviously the community manager and it's not just strong management but i think without the right kind of personality or the the right kind of character that that and depending on the kind of community obviously we we know the the fundamentals they've got to have good product knowledge they've got to have the respect of the users all of those standard things that we talk about all the time but they've also just got to have that's something magic that works for for that kind of audience. They need to be approachable but knowledgeable, right? And that's not always easy to find, but but let's say you do. Even then, sometimes it doesn't work. And so, yeah, at, at what point then do you go, I'm either going to have to just accept that I'm happy with this as it is and it's a, it's a beautiful thing, but it's never going to grow exponentially um, and it's not necessarily ever going to make back its money, but I'm happy that I solve something cool for these people that are important to me or... Do I go, yeah, look, I just, I can't continue to justify my time on this or the cost on this and yeah, and and yeah, and you walk away. <laughs> We're gonna, I want to talk about that in a minute because you had that experience, but I, something you just said there was interesting. So finding someone who's approachable, but knowledgeable, that resonates of like thinking about who do you want to put in a position of leadership in your community and and hire community managers yeah. i like that that way of articulating it they're approachable it's like someone that you feel like you can go and ask any question to but also knowledgeable yeah uh, someone who like understands the space really deeply someone who you know is asking the right questions and sharing the right um, ideas is there anything else that comes to mind for you that is really important when looking at bringing on a community manager to work on or lead a community? So I, I'll, and I'll just go back to speaking to my own personal experience, but like I remember when I started managing experts, that was a reasonably daunting thing because, you know, I mean, I'd been a community manager for a long time, but as everybody does at some stage, you know, I had some imposter syndrome and it's like, you know, what is it that, that makes me the person that that's best equipped to manage this community of people that do the same thing that I do? And I think potentially what I had that made it work was, and part of this being a Kiwi and we're kind of pretty self-deprecating, but, <laughs> but having the, as you said before, like being really authentic and I, like, I've never had an issue with saying, shit, guys, I just actually don't know, or Hey, uh, you could try this, but I can't promise it's going to work. You know, it's, it's about admitting that you don't always have the answers, but mm. either being a sounding board for other people to work through their own ideas or um, you know, being able to share your failures. I think sharing your failures is a is a huge a huge piece, and it takes um, a specific kind of individual, especially in an imposter syndrome type situation, or or in a in a professional environment, to be able to go, you know, should I I tried this and it and it just didn't work, or hey, I just don't have the answer for you here. I mean, I've always kind of felt like my responsibility as somebody that's been in this industry forever is to share that knowledge 
and is to share those mistakes. And mm-hmm. no one stops making mistakes if we don't learn from them ourselves or we don't share that so somebody else can learn from them. Then was that mistake just a complete waste of time? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think I think you need to find people that are comfortable with that level of communication. I also think you need to find community management isn't just about managing a community, right? It's, a, it's about managing people and that's, that's managing the way that the people behave within your community, but also potentially managing the staff. Like at that site point, for instance, I have 55 staff. Now, managing 55 people is a skill in itself, even if we weren't running a community. And also, those people are almost always remote. So you're managing remote people that you don't know, you've never been in real life. Then you've got all those fraught things that we all probably have started to, to discover as we work from home that conversations are harder to have when you can't see someone's face. And so, you know, there's a million different different pieces. And also I think that organisations often go in low with budgets, especially for, for new communities. So you're going to get someone junior and you're asking them to to take on a pretty daunting and huge role and potentially a company they don't know much about. So, you know, you, you need to trust that they have the support structures that they need, but also um, make sure that you that you remember um, what you're asking of them because it's different from asking people to do a formulaic job. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't want to offend any accountants or, or anyone else, but, you know, like accountancy to me appears to be something that you tend to do the same kinds of things over and over and over, and you can become very good at that. Community is much more fluid and much more... Creative in creative. a way. Yeah, unique. and every, everyone is different, but you're not just... You're not just pitching your ideas. You're trying to motivate other people and persuade other people to to come on board with those ideas, and then you've got to herd them, right? So there are so many different moving parts. Um, mm-hmm. And I think at CMX and and Richard Fever B and probably I think there's a number of other people do it as well. Uh, have started to formulate, you know, training. I know that um, John O'Bacon, one of my favourites as well, is you know he puts together a lot of videos and stuff. So we, we're trying to find ways to help people with all of these pieces, but if you don't know what they are, <laughs> how can you find them? Yeah, I mean, and, and it just goes back to that last point of there's certain things in community that's operational and repeatable, yeah. certain formats that tend to work, but there's obviously a lot of creative dynamics within those systems that will actually define what communities are successful and engaged and which ones never really take off. You spoke about at some point, if, if it's not working or you're not feeling passionate anymore, you know, leaving the community or stepping away. And that's something you did with the community that you started with UX Mastery. So I wanted to ask you about what was that journey like to get to the point where you knew it was the time to step away? It was incredibly hard. It's been a year now and I've taken the year to kind of distill my feelings about it and it takes a lot of courage to walk away from something that you built <laughs> from the ground up and you know I, I really um i agonized over it for a long time um ux mastery was a very community-centric brand and it was run by a couple of really good friends of mine so on that level it wasn't an easy decision to make either and the community was was very successful and it had all of the right pieces it had all the committed members but, you know, as I, as I mentioned before, it was kind of a hybrid of those two types of communities. Like it was on one level, it was a support community, but on one level, it was trying to be a community of practice. And so we were trying to appeal to, to two different audiences. Like we really wanted, you know, the old guard UXs to come and have these amazing, interesting discussions that, that stimulated and challenged people. But what we were getting was hundreds and hundreds of brand new, you know, people trying to find their way into UX asking which course should I take and, you know, which is the best boot camp and what's the job market like? And they were asking all of these sort of entry-level questions, which are really important, but they are pretty exhausting for the experienced people that want to talk about, you know, patterns or, or what their work looks like during the day and, and that kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, once those questions were answered for those new people, they would there was a little motivation for them to stick around. And so it, it really just turned into kind of me answering questions for people. Mm. Yeah, as I said, there was a core group of people that were that were great and that hung around, but that was only because we did have that, I mean, we were lucky that we did kind of hit on that that perfect formula of people creating friendships. So, you know, people were, were there, to, they'd check in each day to see what was going on, but the community concept wasn't quite on 
point, I think, and so that's that's why it sort of stopped working. And so I, you know, I was full time at Discourse at that t- at, by that time, and I was managing a large team. I had young kids, so I was pretty time poor. And so I didn't really have the resources to commit to a strategic pivot at that time, even though I knew kind of deep down that that's what we needed to do to make it work. I decided that the right thing to do was probably step aside and move someone else into the role that had kind of new energy to make those changes. But a really big part of me felt like that was admitting defeat. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, it felt on some level like a, a personal failure. Um, but what I've realised retrospectively was that it would have been a much bigger failure not to have had the courage to do that. And it's just something that I don't think we talk about enough. Like all community managers understand what that engagement trap looks like and all community managers understand what, well, sorry, not all, everyone that, that's managed more, you know, a number of communities. It's not hard to stumble across a community that has one of these issues or, you know, not quite nailing, mm-hmm. not quite being able to appeal to, to your wide audience or not quite being able to solve this this little piece. You can keep battling and battling. Um, I mean, the other piece at UX Mastery was that it wasn't a hugely, like it was a, an incredibly successful business that focused a lot on on learning resources for new UXs, but there wasn't a huge lot of income coming in. We were selling eBooks, and I was the biggest cost center. And I was aware that as the biggest cost center that was taxing on the business. And as a result, I got stuck in the cycle of feeling like I needed to be delivering much more of a return on investment mm-hmm. in order to make the community self-sustain. And I got into this cycle of feeling like I was justifying myself and the community, which is an unhealthy place to be in, you know, on a mental level. Um, and, you know, if you are constantly justifying something, but you don't have the time or energy or resource to make a brave choice and change it, then the braver choice is to walk away. So, yeah, I did. The community is still going really strongly. Um, interestingly, it's now being managed by um, some volunteers I've got no idea what the stats look like because I, I don't have, I'm not not provided that information anymore. But it's certainly still getting plenty of of daily activity. So I'm really pleased on that level. I don't think that it's ever going to go through the roof. I think it will probably carry along on this you know slow trajectory for, for a while until either the business model changes or they they close it down. But um, yeah, that that of course adds that anyone that's that's left a community job, whether the community remains or not, you know, how often do you, you always think you're going to keep coming back and visiting? But that's you right. <laughs> yeah, you realize there's a reason you were exhausted. Right, exactly. You just needed space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I feel that, and you know, honestly, there's been points in the last seven years of building CMX where I've felt like, shit, I just need to step away, and. You know, in, in many ways, I've been very fortunate that a lot of the times when that happened, something else would happen to kind of like re-energize everything and yeah, yeah reinvigorate you. Yeah, you know, like the acquisition for us was was kind of a, a point like that for us. Like we were talking about shutting down the conference because it was, you know, a huge cost center, and we were trying to figure out how to make the business financially sustainable. And, and I was just exhausted from like five years of bootstrapping this thing and. It's kind of similar, like it was growing, but we couldn't make it into a successful business. And there were points where I was like, maybe, you know, maybe the best thing is for me to step away and let someone else take the lead and shift things a lot. And, you know, in the end, the the acquisition happened for CMX that unlocked, you know, the resources and the growth and just let us breathe in a way that we hadn't been able to in many years. And that's you know, given us a lot of new energy and the community's grown a lot since then. And it was like, oh, finally, we could do all the things that we knew we wanted to do, but we just were like figuring out how to do it without money. But, you know, there are definitely points where if something didn't happen to change, it would have just made more sense to hand over the keys and yeah, or wind it down, right? Like sometimes the best thing for communities, like it's kind of seen its course play out and it's time to move on. It did what it was there to do. That's right. And because and, you, you also got to protect yourself from bitterness as well, you know, you, I, like I, I'm glad I look back fondly on the places that I've left because I didn't get to a point that either I felt like I wasn't performing the job that I was there to do or because I let it go on for so long that I, you know, developed bitterness. And, yeah, that's not a healthy place to be and that also kind of negates all of the years that you spent working so hard on it as well if you don't walk away with positive or proud memories, you know. Hundred percent. Well, I appreciate you sharing that, and it was actually in our prep call when when this came up, and then I, I tweeted that like you know I think it's often a, a thing that community builders 
deal with. And a few people already private message me saying like, this is something I'm dealing with right now. So I really appreciate you bringing it up. So I think you sharing your story here will inspire a lot of others to reflect on their communities and their roles. And I'm sure you sharing your story will help a lot of people. Yeah. I think we should talk about it more. Yeah. Anyone's um, welcome to reach out to me as well. If they, if they want to bounce it around, I'm happy to to talk more about it offline. Highly recommend reaching out to Hawk. She's got plenty of time, as you can tell from everything so. <laughs> But you are always very generous with your time and very giving oh, to people in this space. So I have no doubt anyone who reaches out will get a nice response. <laughs> Yay. Diving a little bit more into back into kind of the practical stuff, which I wish we just had like three hours to speak <laughs> out. I, I, I need more Hawk time, but you know, you you have this deep experience now working both with multiple platforms over your career and now going really deep into discourse and working with companies to help them figure out how to make their community successful on the platform. So I'm, I'm curious, I guess, just on the highest level first with platform, what someone should be considering when they're looking for a platform for their community today? What 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 should be the questions that they should be asking? At a very base level, it's it's whether you're looking for a, a hosted service or whether you've got resource in in house to self host, and that immediately chops out a number of a number of options. I think most people these days seem to look, look for some kind of hosted service, especially in large communities. And just can you clarify what that means for anyone who's new oh, to it? Sorry, yeah. So a, a hosted service being a managed community that that you pay a either a hosting fee or a license fee for and. And they take care of the of the updates and the the security stuff, and and you just manage it through a dashboard, as opposed to to getting your hands dirty in your own servers. Vbulletin, for instance, has both options. At Discourse, we have both options. Right. Some of the the bigger platforms, Chorus, for instance, is a, a hosted service. Right. So a lot a lot of the enterprise platforms will either have both options, or or it's self hosted. And then, of course, there's the Facebooks and things like that, where yeah. they're obviously hosting everything on their site. You have no control over the product. Or the data. Uh, there, <laughs> there are things now like, yeah, or the data. Um, and then there's things that are somewhat in the middle ground, Mighty Network, Circle, Mobileye, yeah. things like that, where they are hosting on their servers for the most part, I believe. Yeah. But you get the data and have some control. Yeah, that's right. And I, I classify Discourse as a hosted service in that regard as well. Um, although being open source, you can host yourself on a server or on a yeah, DigitalOcean droplet. Exactly. Um, and then second, I'd, I'd ask, you know, what the purpose of your community is. So, and who does that kind of community really well? So, how technical are your audience? How flexible is the product? How much does it cost to customize? Like, there's no point in going for a highly, highly technical product if your if your audience is elderly people, for instance. You know, they're potentially more comfortable on something like Facebook that they've seen before a million times, but you're not going to win the hearts of any developers if you uh, try and build your, your developer community on, on Facebook. or So to a degree, it's how technical are your audience and what are their needs. People always come to us with features lists, but they're always the yeah. same. Like no, no, no community really. None of the kind of top 10 most used communities don't cover off all of those features, right? So features lists are pr- less important in the early days those are important but they're not everything so i'd make sure that the platform has the flexibility that you need i look at release cycles like if you you know i'd I'd look for a fast moving roadmap you don't want to get stuck with something working not quite how you wanted if you're going to have to wait 12 months for a release cycle Mm -hmm. that's frustrating for your audience Um, but i think one of the most important and often overlooked things is what the relationship with the vendor looks like so you know do they share your values is open source important what kind of support do you need? What professional services do you have access to? Like you, you might have you might have a, a ton of designers in house, and so that you know they're really comfortable getting their hands dirty and mark up, so you don't need any professional services. Or you might just be a, a you know one man band that needs everything to be delivered. And so you know what does that relationship look like? Are they are you going to be a number that sends in support tickets, or are they going to work really closely with you to achieve the results you want? Obviously, the the latter is going to cost more. So then you've got kind of the, the budget balance. But the thing that's mostly been on my mind recently is what happens when you leave. Who owns your data? Will will you be locked into a year on year contract? Mm. You have to sign up for five years. What happens? You know, like COVID gave everyone a fright. If your business started to fail right now and you've still got three years more to go in your community contract, you know, what, is, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. And also, 
if you do want to leave, do you get charged for your data? I heard a horror story from a, someone that was migrating to us recently that that left the platform they were on and, and took their data. But anyone that's ever done a migration knows that you need two data dumps because you need to do an incremental dump later or you lose a whole lot of information. And, and these people were being charged 15 grand for a second data dump, which, oh, wow. which was potentially written into their contract. But you don't necessarily... That's something most people no. think about. No. Unless they've been through this a few times. Exactly. So those sorts of questions, thinking about what it does look like on the other end. And also lots of lots of vendors deliver this sort of starting package here. We'll give you all of these things that you need. But I would also recommend that you had a look to see what's involved if it's not everything you need. What happens if six months down the track you need another piece of functionality? Are they going to be able to just write that for you? Are they going to be able to write it for you in a timely fashion? Are they going to charge you? What does extending the platform look like down the line? So mm. I think we often go in feeling overwhelmed at the start um, to make sure that we granularly took off all of the tiny little features that we have in our massive spreadsheet. But that's not really seeing the, the woods for the trees, that you, you need to have a much more holistic view of what your next five years looks like, right. what flexibility you do have and, and, and how easy it's going to be to build that into what you've got. Because mm-hmm. you don't want to be hacking your platform. You don't want to be finding little workarounds. You know, if you ask for all of that feedback that I've talked about, talking to your audience and, you know, they say, well, it's really not working for me, how I have to do this, this and this. You can potentially find a, a hack or, or a workaround, but that becomes unsustainable and the technical debt that you end up building up over time just means that you get stuck without being able to upgrade your community. Right. I think anyone that's ever had a big VB community knows what that looks like. And it, that shouldn't be the case with modern platforms these days. So, so yeah, flexibility um, and the relationship with the vendor, I would say, would be the two biggest pieces. And I'd recommend asking for a, for a trial period, asking for a reasonably long, you know, you wouldn't drive a car, even buy a car without driving at first. I think, I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that you launch your community to your audience on a, on a trial, but, you know, get, get a few people around the office to, to spend, you know, a couple of weeks just communicating on this platform and see what it is that you can and can't do because it's impossible if you haven't used a platform before, and even if you have, to know what the limitations are totally. and what's available, and especially if it's a migration because you're coming from a, a place where your audience already has expectations of what they should be able to do um, and sometimes to I mean a big part of it's fear of change so you know don't make a dumb business decision because your your audience are too scared to lose their whatever functionality they think is the most important because they'll forget in a couple of weeks but um right you need to take a much more holistic view it's always ultimately a business decision but it's not just about you people get a little bit blinded by sales talk sometimes I think um and by proposed features that they think would be really cool but if they don't use those features right now they're potentially not going to want to use them in the future so you know make sure you're don't don't ever commit to something that you hope will work down the line basically because it won't right make sure it's something that members actually want and will use when should someone consider building their own tool versus buying never never (laughs) i gotta i gotta host a debate between you and rosie sherry (laughs) i would question why it depends who who the person is if we i guess as we we said before you know we've we've been building this platform for seven years and we've got a a team of 50 and we're still working on it so the amount of work that goes into building a successful platform is huge i guess i don't know why you'd want to reinvent the wheel i'd be interested to to hear um an opposing argument i think one thing that comes up a lot is that like especially today where platforms can become you know ubiquitous or or popular it's like for the most part right now i can you know if i go to a discourse forum i i can tell it's discourse you know what right and for something like community which we talked about having this kind of x factor of identity and social connection there's something to having a a platform that feels custom built distinct from anything else out there just made for this community right and like so rosie sherry who i referenced that she talked about for ministry of testing they had that indie hackers product hunt some examples where it's like they built their own tools specifically for the kind of interaction and experience that they wanted for their community Okay, that's fair. I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase and not say never. I'll say one time, and, and that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I would recommend to, to people 
listening to this is I 100% agree with you a discourse forum tends to look like a discourse forum uh, a vanilla forum tends to look like a vanilla forum but those are open platforms right so I would take that I would take that source code and I, I mean I could show you discourse forums that you didn't know were discourse forums. totally the amount of time and money and investment that it would take to building from scratch you could grab the open source code base from one of our products and spend that same amount of money and get you know, you'd be light years ahead of, of where you are from from starting from scratch. So, totally. so I do think there's a, a bit of a misconception about what's possible. Yeah. Um, with, with open source, and this isn't a sales pitch because you know we don't we don't host it. we don't host it <laughs> open source. Um, so you know we don't make any money from people who have code. But um, and to clarify, to be fair, like a lot of communities I've seen that built their own tools were very simple. Yes. They they were not having very in depth very wide range of features, no in-depth functionality. It was like, you know, it's really s- simple mechanisms. So, you know, they're able to build it very, very simply without, they, they didn't need um, a lot of, to your point, like a lot of all these bells and whistles and features that people think yeah. they must have. When in reality, you know, you have some of the basics. And at the end of the day, as long as you have the right people talking to each yeah. other, that's what's going to move that's the right. needle on making your community yeah. successful. Yeah. So, okay, say someone chooses Discourse or, or any community platform, what are the things that you recommend someone does to get the most out of their platform? You know, how, how do you use a platform to help increase the odds that your community will be successful? I love this question because it brings it brings my platform and uh, sorry, my software and community stuff together, but also my UX stuff. So I think speaking to that, the, the number one thing is is testing, manage your user experience. In UX, we call it the golden paths. Figure out what the, you know the, the five things that that people do the most, and that's probably signing up for an account. It's probably um, figuring out how to post. It's probably logging in. You know, find out what your golden paths are and test those. Test those every month. You never know when something's broken. Like get your get your mother to sign up to your community once a month. You should have this testing process where you get somebody new to do all of those basic things. I've heard so many stories of people going, oh, you know, my numbers are dropping through the roof. We only got half the number of signups this month. Um, and that's because everybody on Safari can't get past the second screen, you know, for instance. Mm-hmm. You've got to keep testing. It's so important. I see people get tripped up by messing around with notification settings. We quite often get asked, uh, you know, how can I how can I force everyone to follow this news category? Because, you know, they, <laughs> they, they sign up to our community. They want to know all our news. No, they fucking don't. Yeah. <laughs> News, they, you know that the fact that, that those settings are in their personal preferences should be a bit of a sign right so don't yeah notification fatigue is a real thing you need to let people have have that control over the settings and the cadences analytics is a big one that people get stuck on down the line they they have a quick look and they go yeah that, that gives me all of the main things that i that i want to see um but then once a month you know they kind of have to tweak the stuff that they report on because it's not easy to get all of the things that they wanted out of the out of the platform. So I think you need to make sure that that in order to report relevant data that answers questions for the business, um, you have access to those right kinds of stats. So whether whether that means you can write queries against your database or you need to get custom reports built or whatever, analytics is going to be a very, very big and very important part of the equation very, very quickly, but not always one that we think about in in great depth at the beginning. Mm. I'd reconsider workflows. I often see people move onto new platforms and they try and recreate the workflows that they had before, especially around moderation, especially if they've got large teams of moderators. I'd use a migration as an opportunity to reconsider some of those workflows, reconsider some of the ways that you've done things before because chances are you're doing them that way because they were limitations of your current platform that you were unhappy about at the time. So, yeah, I'd take a new platform or a migration is an opportunity to reconsider how and why you do some of those things. Sometimes moving away from some of the, the old things that you were doing before means that, you know, you can start to get disruptive or you can start to be more strategic um, with the way you use your time. Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest ones is your onboarding experience. So, you know, obviously the first experience with the platform was more important than, than people realise because a few users aren't really um, feeling really confident and welcome and well-oriented, then you've got an uphill battle to, to try and kind of suck them into this this culture. If, if, yeah, if people don't feel like that first experience was a good one. So that kind of goes back to getting your mother to sign up, have a look what that onboarding experience looks like, and don't make assumptions. Never make assumptions 
about what your um, what your I call them users when I'm talking UX <laughs> the members in our communities don't make assumptions about what your members are going to do they don't do things mm-hmm. the same way that you do all of the time so yeah watch some other people using using your platform or watch some other people onboarding um, and and have a look and see what what gaps you find. So you'll actually like sit and watch someone go through that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's important. I mean, there are tools if you're remote. There are tools to to, yeah. to watch or just get somebody to to record. I think usertesting.com does that. You can watch someone go through the experience. Yeah, that's awesome. The notifications one is really interesting, and that comes up a lot because, like, part of the battle that community builders have today is that competition for attention. Yeah, and while and you know, you said earlier, well, they're spending an hour on Facebook. Well, Facebook also has like the top, you know, addiction engineers yeah, right. <laughs> in the world. And so, I, have you seen anyone do notifications really well in a way that's actually useful and works for a platform that doesn't exist on these large social platforms? I can only really speak to <laughs> to discourse. Um, that's okay. And I'm not necessarily saying that that we've done notifications really really well what i'm saying is that doing notifications really really well means you offer lots of flexibility so i think it would be fair to say that in a group of 10 discourse users there would be no two that that use the notifications in exactly the same way some people hate digest emails some people hate email notifications some people hate on platform notifications some people hate seeing notifications from news categories some people you know everyone's got these these different priorities. And so offering as much flexibility as you possibly can mm. to your members so that they are ultimately in control. Cause that's what, that's what a good user experience comes down to, right? Feeling like you're in control totally. and not that you're being dictated to. So, I love that. and I'm, I'm sure that, that lots and lots of other platforms do that same thing. So be smart about how you utilize that functionality. It's not your place to decide what emails your members are getting. That's their place to decide. It's your place to communicate to them what it's possible to get. Um, and it's your place to point them in the right direction if they keep asking questions that they could have gotten from from notifications from the platform. But don't yeah, don't make assumptions that everyone wants to be signed up for all of the stuff that, that you want to be signed up for because they don't love your business like you do. Mm-hmm. They don't? <laughs> I wasn't talking about your business, too. <laughs> of course, everyone loves my business as much as I love other businesses. And the, those notifications, are they generally email notifications? Are you seeing Chrome notifications or other types of things work right well right now? It's more specifically email notifications that piss people off, I think. Yeah. But yeah, a good, a good platform should have all three. Um, hey, you can piss people off with any notification. <laughs> you, you can, but okay, stress. there's nothing more stressful than, than waking up on a Monday morning and seeing that you've got 5,000 emails and 4,000 of those are, mm-hmm. well, sometimes it's quite nice that if they're just email notifications from a platform, you get rid of them all. We should start snail mailing notifications. <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What we offer is the option to to have push notifications if you want them. You have the option to have on-screen notifications. We have an option that if you haven't been on screen for the last 10 minutes, then that on-screen notification turns into an email notification. But I can also mute any categories or topics or I can ch- choose, I think there's four or five different options. I only, want to, I only want to be notified if someone's specifically mentioned my name or I want to be notified very specifically of anything that happens in this one particular topic because it's really important to me or I only want to be notified of, of things that happen in this entire category. So, yeah, as much flexibility as you can build in yeah. both to, to what they get notifications for and how they get them. Love it. And I know I said this was the last question, but uh, you know, we'll call this like a three-part question because you, you brought up analytics. I think my listeners will, will kill me if I don't ask you about this. <laughs> you have some good ideas here. Yeah. Uh, specifically uh, when it comes to engagement and using analytics to help you build a more engaged community. So setting aside you know, business metrics for the moment, what are the things that you think community builders should focus on? What are the analytics they should be looking at for tracking and optimizing their engagement in their community? My number one metric would be DAU over MAU. So calculating your uh, stickiness. Yeah, stickiness, exactly. Yeah, calculating your, your monthly active users and dividing by your daily active users. So yeah, the stickiness of your community, because that that speaks kind of across the board to a good experience, right? If people If people keep coming back, 
they either love love everything or they love one thing so much that they're willing to overlook the parts that they don't like. And so the holy grail of um, stickiness will be, you know, around the 30 mark, but it's extremely rare to see that. So I'd aim for, for 30 percent. Uh, 30%, 30%, sorry, yeah. So it's like thirty so percent of your monthly active members are daily active. Are coming back members. every day, yeah. And that's yeah, that's uh, and again, it depends on the type of community, right? Like yeah, sure. if it's a support community and they're coming back that often, there's nothing's wrong with your product or or your documentation. But yeah, I'm talking in t- in terms of a of a community of practice then. And daily means they're coming every day. Daily active users meaning the number of people that logged on each day over the last month or logged on a day over the last month. So, so yeah, that percentage is the percentage of, of people that visit 30% of the time in a month. So I want to understand. So I know because I hear this a lot and I haven't perfected this yet. So like every day would mean, does that seem irrational, especially for like communities of practice where people log off for a day or a weekend, are they no longer considered a daily active member at that point? So they're part of the 60% that didn't then, right? Right. So 30% are showing up every day, 30 days in a row. That's the only way to be considered a daily active member. But that's that. Well, now you're going into the sticky. Oh, I see what you're saying. No, well, a, a daily active member, that's not the only way to be considered a daily active member. A daily active member is the number of members that were active on one day. So it only Got becomes it. relevant when you're, when you're doing the DAUMAU. Got it. So if I'm today is a Monday, I'm tracking my DAU over MAU. And so there's 30 people who logged in today and took an action um, and 100 people logged in and took an action over the last 30 days. So that's that 30% is the DAU because that's who is active today. Correct. Got it. And so you can just track that, what, like every month and, and just see how it evolves over time? Yeah, and in, in discourse we have we have a graph on the on the admin dashboard that tracks it for you. But yeah, I used to manually figure it out before I chucked it into this dashboard. So yeah, you you literally take the yeah the daily active users for the last thirty days, and then your your monthly active users, and you divide daily active users by the monthly active users. Got it. Thirty percent. Yeah. Benchmark. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, but, well, it's a good benchmark, but you're nailing it if you get that. So most people, like for instance, on our meta community, I think we average around twenty percent, and it's an extremely right. healthy community. So, yeah, so don't freak out. Yeah. <laughs> if you, like, I think sometimes in the early days at, at UX Mastery, I was sitting around more like around the sort of eight to ten percent. Sure. So, um, yeah. So I'm curious what it is for CMX off to look, but that's cool. Yeah, yeah I really like that metric because it also accounts for like. Yeah, you might have a lot of inactives. You you don't you don't necessarily need to measure those, like incorporate those into, you know, how engaged your community is. You want to know who's showing up and of those people, yeah, you know, how engaged they are. And I really like that metric. I think that's probably the leading one I hear as what people say could be a standard, you know, go to for measuring engagement across the industry. So right, probably some, I've been banging on about it for a year. That's pretty wild. <laughs> Yeah, probably some interesting research should be done there to create some good benchmarks. But oh, absolutely. Okay, cool. You ready for the rapid fire question round? I am. Number one, what's your favorite book to recommend to others? Like the book that you find yourself gifting all the time. Oh, see, people. uh, I would love to be somebody that 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 gifted a nonfiction. Uh, clever books that was going to change someone's life, but I don't read those kinds of books. I only read fiction. Um, favorite book of all time would be A Little Life um, by oh, a Japanese lady. Look it up, A Little Life. It really touched me deeply. It's it's very sad, though, so be warned. Got it, A Little Life. Well, little I, life. I, I just uh, I was just writing about this. I tweeted about how I've only read basically like nonfiction all year this year, and my brain just was like, like I started hating reading yeah. and so I just picked up a good, you know, murder fiction yeah. for the holiday and my brain, like I'm, I'm tearing through this book. It's like the fastest yeah. I've ever read. And so I'm yeah. like, all right, I'm just going to read fiction for a while because yeah. it's otherwise it's exhausting. Yeah. That's how I check out. That's my downtime. Awesome. Okay. Next question. Who's an up and coming community builder creator that you recommend we all follow? Ah, uh, this, is, this will be an interesting one because I believe that she's been on your on your podcast recently. Um, Anika Gupta. Mm-hmm. Anika Gupta is a lovely chick. She um, 
I've done some work with her recently. She's a very talented researcher, and I'm fascinated by any kind of community hybrid roles, as, as you know, with, with my platform stuff. Um, she's a very talented researcher, and I, I first came across her when she was working at The Atlantic. Um, she's got a media background. She's got a really pragmatic approach to, to difficult problems. Um, we've probably already talked about it on this, on this show, but, yeah, I'd, I'd highly recommend her moderation book. I think it's called How to Handle a Crowd. Yep, exactly. a read. So, yeah, check out Anika's stuff. Great recommendation. Awesome book. Maybe that can be the nonfiction that you give. Them. Yeah, good call. <laughs> oh, I love Jono's. If we're going to do that, though, I love Jono's Jono Bacon. Jono Bacon. Well. Books. <laughs> he was also our guest recently, so you're just shouting right. out all the mass music community. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we obviously like the same people. <laughs> I think so. Okay, next question. What's your favorite quick engagement tip that you like to use in your communities? Ah, oh, what do people like to talk about the most? I'd say it's themselves. Um, <laughs> yep. <laughs> So I think yeah, I'm asking any any simple question that anyone can answer about yourselves and you're golden. But I, I do want to caveat that back to, to the value of, of engagement for the sake of it because I do think that's a trap that we get caught we get caught in. Um, but, yeah, I know on Meta or on our internal discourse instances, one of the most popular ones that I love is what did you have for lunch today? Mm. It's like food porn, but um, also it's something that's such a low barrier to entry and and, and the, the conversations that it, that it raises and the, the cultural food stuff we talk about as a result and things like that is really interesting as well so mm-hmm. it's not just not just engagement for the sake of it but it's actually really interesting learning stuff about colleagues and culture. i love that. that that actually makes me think of something that has worked really well in our community as well which was inspired by my friend ivan cash who's this incredible artist and creative that does a lot of like social kind of art on a global scale like you know, as people snail mail each other these like really interesting projects or goes on planes and hands out these pieces of paper that everyone draws into different squares uh so by the end of the flight you have this like cool communal piece of art um but he has this thing where he goes up to people and asks them to share the last photo on their phone and share that story and so we Uh, started trying that in our community just the last photo and so share the last photo on your phone and tell us what it is. And oh my God, every time we do it, it, it blows up. Yeah. Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a great one. So definitely resonates. Let people tell you a little bit about themselves and, and share stories. I think that's part of yeah. it too. All right. Yeah. Uh, next question. What's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of? <laughs> uh, I am a bit of an outlier in the sense that I don't join a lot of communities, but I've probably got some interesting, I, I, I see uh, a lot of communities in the in the day to day, you know. The kind of course it, I, of I think this might be a thing, by the way, that like community builders don't actually join a lot of communities. Right. Like, yeah. Well, that's good. I wondered if. Mm. Um, but what I can tell you is there are some crazy ones out there. Um, so a uh, couple of ones that are spring to my. I love their their taglines. So I was looking at these up um, the other day. Actually, we've got a community out there called Love Honey. And uh, their tagline is, it's a friendly place where adults can discuss sex toys without their perv alarms going off. I love that. Wow. Um, yeah. Oh, there's no fit life. It's like Facebook, but run by kinksters. Uh-huh. I just love that. I love that. These are the, the, the one-line taglines that are going to draw people into these communities. So to be very clear, I don't belong to these communities. Um, but, I, but I do love the... Um, the same space hawk. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, yeah, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll let you off the hook. Okay, last question. If you were on your deathbed now and you had to condense all of your life lessons into one tweet-sized piece of advice for the rest of the world, what would that advice be? I highly doubt that I'm going to die in bed. I suspect it will be the, it'll be the result of some badly executed show-off trick. So I think if I was shouting something out just before I went, uh, it'd be uh, don't be afraid to go first because if you don't, you'll spend your whole life looking at the back of the person that was braver than you. Hmm. Don't be afraid to go first because yep. if you don't, you'll spend the rest of your life looking at the person who went ahead of you. The person that was braver than you. Hmm. Probably me dying. <laughs> not in the bed. <laughs> not in the bed. <laughs> oh, God, I hope not. <laughs> I have to say that. Everyone else will, too. Well, that's a great deep uh, point to, to wrap up our episode. Hawk, this is awesome. <laughs> um, just want to say how grateful I am for you. And, I mean, you've been giving to this industry and to the CMX community for many, many years 
even when uh, we were sort of competitive back in the day, you were always thoughtful and respectful and kind. And I think our industry has, has just gotten so much value from everything that you've done and really grateful for you and for you taking the time to, to come chat with me today. Oh, that's really kind. I, I, I value my, my place in this ecosystem very highly. So um, that's a really lovely compliment. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, and last thing, where can people go to find you and continue to follow you? Oh, this always comes up and I always have to caveat it with, uh, this was before I knew Twitter was a thing. <laughs> my, Twitter handle, my Twitter handle is I love the hawk. Um, but anyone can always find me um, at, at, at Discourse, where, um, yep, hawk at discourse.org. And I'm I'm happy to to connect on anything that, that I see today if people want to chat about about it further or obviously also about um, discourse if, if people are, ha- are interested in hearing more about that. But, yeah, it doesn't have to be product-related. But you should because discourse is definitely one of the leading platforms out there. I know lots of people use it and love it. So if you are looking for a community tool, highly recommend giving a shout to Hawk. I appreciate that. All right, awesome. Well, thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. See ya. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo, and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.